welcome to the latest Bicom podcast. I'm Richard Pater, the director of Bicom in Israel, and I'm delighted to be, to be here in Ramat Gan with the British ambassador, Neil Wigan. Thank you very much indeed for joining me. Thanks very much, Richard. Just for a little bit of background for people that don't know, um, Neil's been the ambassador here for about a year and a half. Um, he's actually been based here in Israel beforehand in, from 2002 to th- 2006. He was the head of the political section, and we'll uh, perhaps ask him about that in a, f- in a few minutes. Um, he's also served as the head of the Middle East North Africa Group and as an advisor on foreign policy and defence policy to the Cabinet Office. And in addition, he has served as the British ambassador both to Somalia and the Democratic Republic of Congo. So first of all, I should tell our audiences, this is one of the first podcasts we've done in a while where I'm sitting in person with our guests. So uh, again, thank you, Ambassador, for having me here in your, in your official residence. Um, if we can start, and kind of one of the main themes that we've talked about over the last few months have been the Abraham Accords. Um, just to gauge your reaction, when they were first announced, how, how surprised were you and what's your initial take of them? So we were very positive and very quickly so. So I think we were one of the first governments to come out uh, and welcome the the agreement with the UAE and we're very positive about it. And we've done the same for the agreements with Bahrain and Sudan as well. Uh, We think the agreements are are good for Israel, they're good for the region and we, we look to see how we can support them. And we also hope that the agreements will uh, help restart the peace process with the Palestinians. So what, what do you think that the UK can do to support them? I mean, I note that the UK has kind of excellent ties um, with the Gulf and obviously here in Israel as well. So what's can, what role can the UK play in kind of developing these things further? So a lot of really good stuff is happening direct already. So I think I've been really struck by how quickly, particularly with the Emiratis, um, the Israelis and the Emiratis have put together accords in a really wide range of issues. Uh, And I have Israelis telling me that the the Emiratis are are moving faster than the Israeli system can deal with, which is a a really good problem to have. And it feels like almost every Israeli I know has already been to the Emiratis for business and is probably planning on going there for holiday. but what, we're, what we are looking for is where we can uh, add value in trilateral activities. And that could be, for example, on the science side, uh, on the technology side, on the prosperity side, as well as on the political side, uh, and use, as you say, the good relationships we have in the Gulf and with Israel um, to keep things moving forward. Do you think there's a role that the UK can play in encouraging other countries, or do you think that's uh, less appropriate? So we're, we're really supportive of the process. Clearly, uh, there's going to be a new US administration, so we're going to see how normalisation uh, plays out under President Biden. But certainly, we, we have said, and we will continue to say to our partner, partners in the Gulf and elsewhere, that we think normalisation is, is a real positive. Absolutely. Um, I mean, obviously, one of the kind of the shared agendas of, of Israel and the Gulf is the is the concern over Iran and developing nuclear weapons, a goal that the UK government has also kind of stated and uh, and 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 supportive in the same in the same direction. However, there is a disagreement over their means. From your conversation with Israeli leaders, have they made an impression on you on kind of sharing the dangers uh, inherent in the the current uh, Iran deal? So, as you say, we. We agree entirely with Israel on on the objective, but we we disagree on the means, particularly around the the JCPOA, the the nuclear deal. Um, But we discussed that very openly and frankly uh, with Israel, and both sides are clear to say where we come from. We absolutely understand Israeli concerns, 
we don't claim the deal was perfect, but we do feel it was the best deal that could be negotiated at that time. And we also think strongly that it helped to uh, constrain and ensure monitoring of Iran's nuclear program, which is in everybody's interests. Of course, we're now moving into a new phase with a new US administration, and we'll see where that leads us. Um, but we hear very clearly not only Israel, but Gulf countries as well, say that it's very important that the region is, is listened to as we get into the next phase with Iran. Kate, can you just tell us kind of a little bit behind the scenes, perhaps, kind of what that conversation looks like in the era of, of coronavirus, whether kind of these are meetings that you can handle or your colleagues in London probably aren't able to travel here at the moment. Um, what, is the, what does that conversation look like? So if it's really essential, we can still travel, um, but certainly we're doing a lot at the embassy here to have the direct conversations with the Israelis and also at the UN in New York, at the IAEA in Vienna. Um, there are a lot of, there's a kind of constant rhythm of, of discussions with the Israelis because this is right at the top of, of their agenda, and quite rightly so. Mm. I mean, and beyond the kind of the JCPOA and the, and the details on the nuclear deal, um, how, how seriously do you take the concerns of Israel, Israelis' concerns over Iran's regional agenda? So this is clearly uh, critical for Israel, and they say that Iran's uh, malign behaviour in the region has, has increased in recent years. Um, they point to everything going on in Syria and particularly to um, Hezbollah's precision-guided missiles. Uh, we share those concerns and we have our own concerns about what Iran is doing, which is directly against UK interests. For example, in Iraq, where we still have a strong presence. Uh, in Syria, where Iran continues to support the Assad regime, which has done terrible things to its people. Um, even in Yemen, where we're deeply worried about the, the conflict and the humanitarian crisis there. And, uh, and in terms of kind of preventing Iran's uh, further spread with both precision-guided missiles and their other agendas that you just mentioned, what do you think the international community can be doing about that? So part of that is about having different strategies in different countries, because what we really want is in countries like Lebanon or Iraq, where we work closely with those governments, for those governments to have the ability themselves to, uh, to manage their relationship with, with Iran and to prevent uh, Iranian support to proxies. Um, Israel clearly acts directly, notably uh, in Syria, in a way that we won't uh, join in directly. But it's something that we talk to Israel constantly, and they are very clear that as we get into new negotiations uh, with Iran, that we should look at what Iran does across the region. Absolutely. I mean, as you, as you mentioned at the beginning, kind of we're, we're all waiting for President-elect uh, Biden to take it to take office, um, and, uh, and see the direction he takes uh, both the kind of the Iran talks over the nuclear deal and their other uh, other issues on the regional agenda. What do you think? Uh, what can you do? You anticipate uh, will be the uh, the Biden approach. So we've welcomed his uh, early statements uh, <clears throat> on the JCPOA and on getting back to the diplomatic process. Um, and including on getting Iran to return to compliance. And as you know, the, the British, the French, the German foreign ministers very recently expressed publicly our concern about Iran's recent announcements about getting new three new uh, centrifuge le levels going at Natanz and legislation in front of the uh, Iranian parliament, which would 
increase Iran's nuclear activity, uh, and we call on Iran to come back into compliance with the JCPOA so we can get that, keep that deal alive and keep it effective. Do you think that's realistic that they're going to be... Uh, where, would you, where would you hunch on this one? I mean, I think it's critical for Iran. Iran has a chance with President Biden to, to get back into the deal, and a deal which Iran clearly judged was in its interests. We've seen sanctions have a real effect on the Iranian economy. So Iran has a, a clear strategic choice now with this opportunity um, to return to compliance on its nuclear programme and to improve its relationship with its neighbours and its international partners if it wants to get its economy back into a, a stable place, particularly given the impact both of the low, low oil price and of corona. Mm. I just wondered, from a position of ambassador to Israel, how much you're coordinated with your colleagues of ambassadors in other um, regional, regional capitals and how, how, how much of an advantage having kind of UK assets and, uh, and, and kind of intelligence on the ground there can inform your, your own analysis. So one of the big advantages that we have, as you say, is we have uh, embassies across the region, including in Tehran, mm. which clearly the, the US doesn't and mm. uh, Israel very obviously doesn't. Uh, and so we have the depth of engagement with those countries uh, and across the Gulf countries who are concerned about Iran's influence. We have very active programs, for example, on security sector reform in both Lebanon uh, and Iraq. Uh, and that makes us a, a major player in the region, talking to all sides. And hopefully that, that gives us an understanding of what's going on. And the Israelis are extremely interested in hearing what we have to say about that. I'm sure. Um, as I mentioned at the beginning, you, you were based here uh, 15 or so years ago. I just wondered kind of from, a, from, from an Israeli perspective, kind of now that you've been back over a year or so, um, what surprised you most and kind of the changes that, you've, that you can uh, note within Israeli society and uh, across the country? So one very clear change is I was here, um, as you said, in 2002 to 2006, so during the, the Second Intifada, when there were regular suicide bombings in Israel, Israel had uh, gone back into the occupied territories under Operation Defensive Shield, um, and that sense of the conflict and of threats to personal security was, was really acute. I used to get the bus to work and you could feel the, the tension. Every time you went into a cafe or a restaurant or the cinema, you'd be searched before you went in. So there's a big change in that sense of, of personal security and the conflict feels a lot more distant than it used to, which is, is clearly very positive. Uh, second, you've had um, 15 years of strong economic growth in Israel and Israel feels a lot richer and more prosperous. GDP per capita is about the same as in the UK at the moment, so that's a significant change. And then linked to that, you had this amazing growth in the Israeli IT sector, which was, was, was underway when I was last here. But now you feel it all the time in all aspects of, of Israeli life and of how Israel engages with the world and very much how the world sees Israel. And I think that at least part of what's behind the normalisation process is um, the sense in the Arab world of the opportunities that the Arab world can have by engaging with, with Israeli technology. And those changes have fed a lot across into the bilateral relationship. So again, when I was here first, we as an embassy were very focused on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and on the peace process. 
and that really took up the lion's share of our time. Uh, and that's no longer true. So it's clearly still a very important part of our work and attracts a lot of attention. But we spend a lot more time on Iran and regional issues, as we've talked about. The security and military relationship have grown out of all recognition compared to what they used to be. And we recently signed a new defence agreement um, between the, the two chiefs of staff. Uh, and I got to see... Um, a UK fighter landing at Ramat David Air Base for the first time since it actually used to be an RAF uh, air base before independence. So that was uh, quite a moment. Um, and then our work around trade uh, has really expanded and we're now Israel's third biggest trading partner after just the US and China, so the biggest in Europe. Um, into technology where Israel is of huge interest from across departments and the private sector in the UK and increasingly into science which I think is an area where the UK and Israel could, could do a lot more together and where we've seen through projects the embassies finance that happening we've seen real benefits to both sides and a real enthusiasm from world-class scientists on both sides to, to do even more together. Fantastic. Well, there's a few things that I want to pick up uh, on, on those comments, but let me, let's start with something that, uh, that you mentioned. Obviously, the UK is still supportive of a, of a two-state solution, um, but it's kind of lower down on the, on the agenda. What do you think, is there anything that the UK, a role that the UK can play kind of constructively to encourage the sides back to, back to talks or to move back into that uh, kind of a diplomatic engagement? So we've got close and positive relationships with both sides, and that's not something that many countries can say. Uh, and it, it still attracts a lot of interest in the UK. So Dominic Raab, the Foreign Secretary, uh, was out here in July for one of his first uh, international trips since Corona struck, um, very shortly after the announcement of the agreement with the UAE. And he was here to encourage cooperation between the two sides to use the UAE announcement um, uh, to create some positive momentum and so to that we're, we're, really, we, we're really positive that cooperation between the two sides has resumed and we hope that will lead into a path back towards negotiations. Clearly that needs to be led by the Israelis and the Palestinians um, but the UK will do what it can to support that. I realise it's more of the responsibility of your, of your colleague in the Consul General in Jerusalem, but could you just say a word about kind of any of the, of the top-line projects that the UK government is there working on within the Palestinian Authority? Sure. So we have... So with the Palestinian people rather than with the Palestinian Authority, we have a big programme with UNRWA, uh, and we've increased that programme since the, the US uh, withdrew funding from UNRWA, supporting Palestinian refugees particularly in Gaza, where the humanitarian situation is worse, but in the West Bank, but also in Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, and other countries where UNRWA operates. Um, we provide some funding direct to the Palestinian Authority, which helps it provide uh, health and education services to its people. We provide some technical assistance, and also for some years now, we've been very involved in security sector reform. And this has been one of the really positive stories since I was last here, uh, when the Israeli and security forces, Palestinian security forces were really uh, not at all cooperating with each other. And now we've seen that cooperation be deep and persistent, and we think clearly been in the benefit of both sides. Absolutely. Um, I mean, when, when, when those... Uh 
when, when, those, when those talks were kind of held up because of the, the concern over the uh, extension of sovereignty, annexation issues, did the, did the, did the UK presence there um, step up its role? Was that kind of a, 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 a moment where you had to prove your worth or was that kind of beyond, beyond, beyond a third party intervention? So we're not, we're not doing security directly. We're working with the Palestinians so that they can uh, do security themselves and, and to help them work uh, with the Israelis. So the, the, the formal cooperation was suspended. But I think in the past, if you'd seen uh, an end to that kind of cooperation, you would have seen much more of a deterioration in security on the Palestinian side. Uh, and clearly we... We, we thought that the suspension of cooperation was, was a mistake, but the fact that it didn't lead to a deterioration in security, it didn't lead to violence against either Israelis or Palestinians, um, is a real positive, and we think proof that, that the work we've invested has made sense and has made a difference. Um, and you mentioned before about the kind of the security cooperation between Israel and the UK and the signing recently of this partnership agreement between the IDF and the British Armed Forces. What can you tell us uh, about that deal? But what, what does it involve? So, as I said, since I was last here, we, we've seen a really sharp increase in cooperation, and that formal agreement recognises that. Uh, Israel clearly has very capable um, security forces. Uh, and so, for example, we have done joint exercises with the new F-35 jet with Israel, the US and the UK. And Israel is uh, one of the few countries that has the F-35 in operations. Um, Israel is also, I talked about technology before, and again, Israel is a leader in how it applies technology to its military. And as you will have seen in the new defence review in the UK, that's a big emphasis on how the UK armed forces themselves are going to change. So we're very interested in what Israel does around technology and innovation uh, and how we can learn lessons from that. Thank you. Um, I mean, we're, we're, we're talking um, kind of on the crux of the, of the Brexit uh, um, the Brexit actually being uh, being implemented. What would you say to an, to an Israeli audience that is listening that they need to know about Brexit and how that would affect uh, the bilateral relations? So the honest answer is it's not going to have a, a huge impact on bilateral relations. So Israel always really saw us, I would say, more as the UK than it did as a, a member of the European Union. Um, some Israeli political leaders, including Prime Minister Netanyahu, who um, have welcomed Brexit and see this as an opportunity. Um, and in the UK, I think ministers see Israel as the kind of country where we could do much more now that we're looking to expand our, our relationships globally um, and be maybe less focused than we were um, on the EU. Israel is just the kind of country, given its economic opportunity, the technology opportunity, um, where we could do even more. And so Israel was one of the first countries anywhere in the world where we signed a, a trade continuity agreement, as it's called, which basically ensures that um, Israeli and British firms can keep trading um, after Brexit, just as they did before Brexit, without interruption. And I think that's a very concrete uh, demonstration of the desire on both sides um, to keep the really strong relationship going. And, uh, and on that relationship, I mean, how much of a dent has corona made, coronavirus made to the trade and kind of what do you uh, project the economic relations to recover in, uh, in next year, in 2021? 
So we're still getting the statistics in now, but our early results show that trade between Israel and the UK fell roughly in line with um, how, 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 UK and Israel, how UK and Israeli trade both have fared globally over the last year, which is a fall of about 10%. Clearly, we hope that there will have been some recovery uh, in the second half. Um, and of course, this comes off the back of years of very strong growth and bilateral trade by Israeli statistics um, is now over $10 billion a year and has been for the last couple of years. So I'm confident that we'll get back to that level quickly, particularly because technology, which is really increasingly driving trade between the countries, has been less affected than some other sectors. And if anything, um, more people want to move into digital, want to move into data um, post-corona than they did before. So in some ways, corona, I think, strengthens the, the, the opportunities um, that we see on both sides. And certainly on scientific issues, on medical issues, on technology issues, we saw a lot of cooperation between both public authorities but private companies as well during corona. Um, and just to kind of as we hopefully will be coming out of Corona, and as I said, in a in a post Brexit world, if we can go back to the to the region, um, what what do you think we can expect from British uh, diplomacy post Brexit? Um, can we expect kind of uh, the UK to f- to forge a more robust and individual path that perhaps uh, they've, they've been held back by the the EU? What do what can we expect in the year ahead? So I think so. Something so for our values will not change. So in many ways we are we are like minded with uh, the EU countries. Uh, we're very clear that we're leaving the EU. We're not leaving Europe. And there will be some issues, particularly Iran, where we work very closely with both the EU um, and with Germany and France in particular. So I wouldn't expect a, a dramatic change. But what our ministers very strongly believe is that this will give us a bit more flexibility, we'll be able to move a bit faster, Uh, we'll be able to, for example, when it comes to sanctions, we'll now have our own national sanctions regime rather than be part of a, a broad EU regime that relies on consensus. So we will be able to be um, a bit faster, a bit more flexible um, and a bit more distinctive. But I wouldn't expect a a massive change because our our interests and values remain as they were already. Thank you very much, Ambassador. That was great. Most appreciated. Thanks very much indeed, Richard.